morning, everybody. There's a glaring absence for me this morning. My wife, Bethany, and son, Elam, are home. He's recovering from a cold. He's doing well. I wanted to say hello to them on the telecast. It's likely that Elam's in the living room lining up Lightning McQueen, Cruz, um, and everybody's favorite mater to watch the sermon this morning. So we have uh, more audience uh, across Jacksonville today. Everyone loves a good story, right? Whether it be delivered by way of a family member at a gathering, a friend during a reunion, maybe a movie, a book, or even a newspaper. You remember these things? The newspaper? In my BC days, before chaplaincy, I was a sports writer for a newspaper. I was a student at the Florida State University, and I was hired by, don't know, the Tallahassee Democrat to cover high school sports in the surrounding area. I was getting paid $50 to $75 an article, and I volunteered literally for any assignment. If it was underwater basket weaving, I was right there with my notepad and pen recording every single play-by-play. But in Tallahassee specifically, it was all about those Friday night lights. High school football is a staple in many towns across America. If you know, you know. Whether you're a player on the field, a coach, a fan, in the marching band, a concession worker, a parking attendant, or selling raffle tickets for the chess team, it seems as if the majority of the community comes out to support high school football. The thing about my job as a sports writer was I had hours of observation, but only about 250 to 350 words to capture the action. Now, for some of you students out there, maybe some of you young people, you might think 250 to 350 words, that's a lot. But literally, I just hit the 250 word mark in this sermon, and I'm just getting started. It's not a lot. But one particular game stands out amongst the rest. It was an in-town rivalry, two hard-nosed football teams believing their teams were headed for glory and destined to win that state championship. The energy, it was palpable. I always got to the game nice and early. I walked up and down the sidelines. I tried to gauge the energy level, gauge the confidence. Who was going to bring their all for this specific game? The equipment staff was usually getting things set up. The cheerleaders were rolling out the mats. And then you had those alumni deep in the back of the end zone, polishing their old state championship rings, still trying to fit in those letterman jackets, reliving those glory days. These games were packed out with fans. It was a back-and-forth battle all night long, each team challenging one another with excellent competition. Changes in possession and scores were happening all night long. But there was one running back that stood out amongst the rest. He was trusted to carry his team to victory on the final play of the game. The crowd went wild, of course. The team rushed the field. But the game had gone on longer than I anticipated. Each week, I had a deadline. And it was 11.15 p.m. And it was already, at that point in time, around 10.40. Another issue with some of these games in these podunk Tallahassee towns was there was no Wi-Fi. Now, this was 2010. My dad's watching this morning. It wasn't in the archaic time frames where you had to plug in and all that type of stuff. It was 2010. It wasn't that long ago. So what I had to do was I had to speed to the local McDonald's, write the story, and send it off before 11.15 My editor hardly had any rules for me. But don't miss that deadline, Zach, he kept saying. Don't miss it because you will rob these kids and these coaches and their families from being in the newspaper the next morning. 
So I hustled. I got a quick quote from the head coach, but the star player was overwhelmed by his family and friends and celebrating and having a good old time, and I had to get to McDonald's. I pulled in to Mickey D's right around 11 o'clock, and I typed as fast as I could with my two-pointer fingers could go. And when I was down to the final sentence, no joke, a literal herd of stinky, sweaty high school football players came piling in the McDonald's. It had appeared that the whole stadium was coming to McDonald's to party. And sure enough, there was that star running back who won the game, and he came strutting in with a smile a mile wide as if he was going to taste that Oreo McFlurry for the first time. Without hesitation, I motioned him over and I said, hey, superstar, you want to be in the paper tomorrow morning? He said, absolutely. I said, take me through that last play that won y'all the game. Of course, he smirked and he said, his team put him in a great position to win. All he had to do was follow the blockers, secure the ball, and trust he was going to get in the end zone. He led his team to glory. Well, the humility wore off immediately because he stood up from the table and screamed across the restaurant, hey, everyone, I'm going to be in the paper tomorrow. We all love a good story, don't we? Stories of all kinds are full of challenges, changes, and trust. I've read a ton of stories, and I know each one of you has as well, and they usually have these types of experiences in them. Life is a story in and of itself, and today I pray God's word convicts, comforts, and reminds us that no matter what our story may read at the moment with Jesus, our story is headed for glory. When it comes to the glory story of the gospel, Jesus puts us in the greatest position to win. In the challenges, we can follow his lead, and during changes, we can be secure. He is always with us. Because of our trust in him, we can be confident our story is headed for glory. The scripture passage this morning gives us a snapshot of the glory story of the gospel through the challenges, changes, and trust of the Apostle Paul. And ironically enough, it's just around 250 to 350 words. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? 
But what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let us pray over the reading of God's holy word. Lord, we pray that when we read your scriptures, it challenges us to clinch on to the truth that the Holy Bible is a revelation of you to us. May we believe that all scripture is a testimony to your Son, Jesus Christ, who can be the focus of our lives with authentic faith in him. And as always, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And all God's people said, Amen. When we believe in Jesus, we are participants in the overarching glory story of the gospel. Our lives are surrendered, and his glory story will shine through us. This morning, we will discuss three experiences a believer will encounter when embarking upon the glory story of the gospel. The first experience is the glory story of the gospel will present challenges. In this passage, it is extremely evident that the Apostle Paul is being challenged. Initially, he poses the question packaged with obvious frustrated sarcasm and ends the probe with the word again, implying this is not the first time this question was asked and now he is irritated. This guy lived amongst the people of Corinth for many months. He built the church there. He built relationships. He fostered a culture centered on Christ. And as he's led to another location to continue the Great Commission, he gets word that the people of Corinth want a letter of recommendation because others began to question his credibility. The people of Corinth began to look down upon him because of his status. I wonder, did they require two professional references or three personal, maybe one family member? Maybe they needed his test scores. Maybe they ran a background check, but we know that was spicy because before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was killing Christians. This begins an impassioned position from Paul, and he gets Old Testament on them. Paul proclaims, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Basically, it's a new feeling of resentment, which was showing itself among some of the members of the church of Corinth. And it was initiated by certain visitors to Corinth who did their best to undermine and challenge Paul's prestige in his converts' eyes. The knowledge of these visitors are later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10 and 13. These specific critics, they leveled two charges against Paul. A preaching pastor and writer, Brian Harbour, stated they charged him with both conceit and deceit. 
In this time, although church had a local spiritual leader, itinerant ministers traveled from city to city, and they often claimed authority in the local churches and taught doctrines which were disruptive to the local fellowships. Consequently, a letter of recommendation from someone was important to establish in a community when they really just weren't well known. Paul's critics claimed that his refusal to bring letters of recommendation to Corinth proved that he was an imposter. So, as we see Paul consistently do, he confronted this challenge with such a smooth combination of conviction and comfort, but it was sourced in confidence. He said, you all wouldn't have existed without me. You said you want a letter. Look on the tablets of your hearts. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He also cleverly quotes the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's Spirit has written His letter of recommendation on their hearts. You are a new covenant people. He explains that his confidence while experiencing this challenge is through Christ and not of himself. The nature of his confidence is by way of his faith in God. So what did Paul do when he experienced this challenge? What do we do when we experience challenges? How do we respond? What if a successful builder was challenged after the development of a building? And it kept that builder away from his family. He was working 18-hour days, and it took three years to complete. What if a successful businesswoman was challenged on the integrity of her finances? When she was hired uh, specifically to do a job, she built a reputation of trust and honesty for decades. What if a pastor was challenged on their dedication to the ministry? And he had spent sleepless nights praying for broken souls to be saved. He also gave a majority of his salary to those in need. And what if in all these types of scenarios, they were being observed? They were even being praised every step of the way, and disruptors challenged it all. They shook things up in a reckless manner. Now, living in the world, it may impact our ego, but what if it was something that was so precious and sacred as our faith? Matt had preached on it a few weeks ago. It is a sense of betrayal that Paul must have felt. The church of Corinth was demonstrating that they were a wave being tossed back and forth in the middle of the sea. So how do we respond to challenges? A gut punch like the questioning of our credibility and our faith, it can redirect us to sink. Sink into doubt, sink into fear, defensiveness, and maybe even drift into the darkness of the unknown. Now we have to remember contextually where Paul was at in this particular time frame. He was tired, exhausted. He'd been walking all over the place, staying with strangers, living by faith, getting criticized, being opposed at every step of the way. He's put down, he's ridiculed, he's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's hungry. But he marches forward in faith. He marches forward in faith in the face of frustration. And he embraces this challenge with confidence found in the glory of the gospel. I can just imagine Paul saying, come on, Corinth. You know me. 
We did life together. We were vulnerable and transparent with our testimonies. We owned our shortcomings together. We repented of our sins. We cried together. We comforted one another. It's like Paul was the actual writer of that little big town lyric. It's where we learned about living. It's where we learned about love. It's where we learned about working hard and having a little was just enough. It's where we learned about Jesus. You can take it or leave it. This is me. This is who I am. In our lives, in our story, just like this story, challenges seem to arise daily, if not hourly. Sometimes it seems as if those challenges stack up. Every time this happens, it seems as if it's so impossible to figure out what God's purpose is in this particular situation. Whether the challenges be an impasse with family, a distant hope with friends, or maybe what appears to be a fading hope in our faith. But in the midst of these challenges that present doubt, fear, defensiveness, and the darkness of the unknown, let us remember that Jesus has already positioned us for glory. Each one of us has so much left unwritten, and right now our story may not look too good. We see all over the Bible the biblical figures and stories. They were dreadful, but God ended up using it all for his good, just like he will for us. So let's not lose hope in the midst of these challenges, because our story is headed for glory. When we accept Jesus into our hearts, we are an open letter to him. Our words, our recommendations do not hold the same weight as when people listen and read our lives. Let's be forthright. Usually our lives look like the intersection of Blanding and 295 on a Friday at 5 p.m. Nobody knows where to go. Nobody knows what lane to be in. And when you are in a lane, it's hard to change lanes and you actually figure out you're in the wrong lane in the first place. Amidst these challenges... We experience as a believer the glory story of the gospel. It's also going to include change. The glory story of the gospel will include change. Here in verses 17 through 16, we reach this remarkably interesting paragraph about Moses' veiling of his face. Why did Moses veil his face? The mention of the new covenant in this passage leads Paul into a long comparison of the Old and New Covenants. The Old Covenant was between God and Israel, mediated by Moses, and the New Covenant was between God and the Corinthians, mediated by Jesus, the Spirit. The Old Covenant, made at Mount Sinai, was truly glorious, and it made Moses himself shine with God's glory. But that glory began fading, not to mention the fact that the laws of the Old Covenant were ineffective of truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, was even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it is his spirit that is now transforming us into his image. Moses was hiding the truth. He was hiding the truth with a veil during this change. And Christ needs no such veiling, for his glory never passes, it never fades, it never grows weary. 
This was momentous change for those following Moses and for Moses himself. Also, there had been significant change in the life of Paul. There was substantial change in the people of Corinth as well. But their examples served to be instrumental for us today because they hunkered down and eventually gave testimony that with Jesus, they were headed for glory. It's been stated, it's been sung, that change is always going to come. Something changed when I turned 30 a few years ago. I'm getting a little personal here. I grew up near Orlando, and I rode those roller coasters nonstop. I've been cliff jumping, I've been skydiving, I've been on many, many cruises, and been on dozens and dozens of flights inside and outside of the USA, but something changed when I turned 30. Now, as Joseph had said, I'm a base chaplain at Naval Air Station Jacksonville, and naturally you would imagine I would fly with the community in which I serve. Well, the first time I flew was an aerial barrel at sea. Very, very excited to participate in this particular service. We had a semi-formal ceremony outside of the squadron around the flagpole with the family, and the executive officer of that specific squadron handed the urn over to me, and I escorted the urn onto the aircraft. Now, this was no ordinary aircraft. This was a P-3 Orion, used back as far as the Vietnam era, and let me tell you, it smelt like it too. We descended, or we took off at Jackson, we descended over the Atlantic to about 300 feet. It was a windy, windy day. My stomach was curious. What are we getting ourselves into? I didn't want to be that guy, especially as the chaplain. I couldn't allow my mind to get worried. But the flight commander, one of the pilots, looked a little wheezy, and it made me have a little assurance, like this was a normal feeling on this 1960s aircraft. Delivered a message over the ashes, and a senior chief dispersed those ashes out of the plane, and an officer recorded the coordinates to give to the family. I felt like I snuck by by the skin of my teeth, but unfortunately, that crew dismissed a direct order from the executive officer who specifically stated something crucial right before takeoff. Hey team, he said, remember, you have chaps on board. Do not do anything funky. They got funky. We ended up at some random airstrip in Savannah, Georgia, and they began doing what is called touch and goes. Basically, as my stomach was turned inside out and upside down, I noticed they were literally doing giant circles in the middle of Savannah, Georgia, approaching an airfield, touching down the tires, and then they wanted to do it again. The first one, I said, all right, I'm all right. But a fellow shipmate, as we call him, noticed my stomach was a ticking time bomb, and he very gently came up to me and handed me this envelope. Now, this envelope says, motion sickness bag for use during moments of stomach upset. Do not be embarrassed by this precaution, as even veteran travelers are subject to occasional motion sickness. He said, don't worry, chaps, it happens to all of us. Needless to say, the tech second touch and go was a touch in, and I handled my business, and I could not wait to get back to Jack's. Ironically enough, I keep looking over at Lieutenant Commander Felter over here, the last flight of the P-3 was this past Friday. They call it sunsetting. Good riddance to that aircraft that's in a boneyard in Texas. The two flights I went on afterwards, I learned to take Dramamine, and they were glorious. Change happens whether we like it or not, right? Whether it be something we want, whether it be something we're prepared for. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, mentally, financially, a whole bunch of other words ending in L-Y. Something's always happening. 
As I experienced in this particular situation, and I know many of you would agree, it's very likely that change doesn't always result in comfort or convenience. In fact, the countless life changes we experience will situate us to be vulnerable, whether we want to be or not. But that doesn't give us an excuse, an excuse to drift or succumb to sin and become dull. Let's not reach for the low-hanging fruit. Let's not try and create an easy way or rush through change. Let's not put a veil over our fears and insecurities in an effort to avoid this change. We see clearly here that if we believe, we're headed for glory. So then, change by way of the gospel, it's a channel for transformation. A transformation to be more like him. Paul brings up a familiar story to the people of Corinth regarding Moses. And for Moses, although he gets a bad rap in this comparison, the changes he went through were undoubtedly hard. But the changes he went through resulted in transformation for all of us. Just watch the Prince of Egypt. The gospel brought everlasting change with the story promising glory. Moses was one of the many shadow figures preparing a way for Jesus years and years before the miracle in the manger. He assisted in the pioneering of everlasting change and took a lot of heat along the way. I find it very interesting how Paul used the example of Moses because Paul very much took a burden of opposition himself when he began ushering in the new covenant as Moses had done with the old. The glory story got rid of the law. It set a new trajectory for eternal freedom and gifted us the spirit of the Lord. That law, it condemned. It did not redeem. The new covenant does not provide a new law to follow, rather a Lord to live for. That was a big, tough, liberating change, springboarding transformation, making the glory that much greater. Paul, using this reference of Moses for many different reasons, something we can continue to talk about later on, but however, we see that the radiance of the old was temporary instead of timeless. We see it was provisional as opposed to perpetual. We see it was incomplete, not imperishable. If we believe the glory story of the gospel, do our lives reflect a belief in the timeless, the perpetual, the imperishable new covenant? Or do our lives have a veil up truly reflecting the temporary, provisional, and incomplete ways of the old covenant. It's time to lift the veil in his name. Our fear and insecurities are secure with the Lord. And let us pray against the tactics of the enemy attempting to stifle our transformation. We all know that change is hard. I do not know what each of you are going through right now, but I'm confident in some of those L-Y words, something is changing. The changes that are happening in our lives are resulting in us distancing ourselves from the Lord. It may be likely our lives are aimed towards something ineffective. And our healthy reminder is this. There is nothing ineffective about Jesus because his story promises us that with him we are headed for glory. Challenges and changes, they're taxing And when we are fatigued, when we are parched, when we are hangry, we all know we make compromises. These challenges and changes that unfold 
with Jesus do not require us to try to recover and get back on track. It begins with our trust. Trust in the one who changed the world on the cross. The glory story of the gospel includes trust. And we have to realize that there is a strong distinction between trying and trusting. In this case, trying is an outward attempt to fulfill a law while trusting is an inward surrender to an almighty God. When it comes to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the astonishment in this freedom, this liberty, is that we do not have to try and do anything. And the grind and the hustle of trying to make it, finance it, build it, plan it, sign it, buy it, all these wonderful skills we develop to navigate challenges and changes in the world are powerless when it comes to trusting the Spirit of the Lord. And we are all naturally raised to be conditioned to be law-abiding citizens, right? But when it comes to God, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, celestial God of the universe, we don't have to try. We trust. Why Moses veiled his face, we are told. Why Christ does not need to veil his face, it's revealed to us. We are told that the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, is liberty, is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When reading this text, let's not become fixated on the contemplation or reflection of glory in order to try and transform but rather focus on trusting while being transformed in order to contemplate and reflect his unbelievable, ever-increasing glory. Paul had no other option than to trust when he was blinded for three days, remember? I'm sure he tried to see, but his efforts were ineffective. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't, but it is likely at some point during our lives following Jesus, we are found with no other option. Trust. I have to wait for that ultimatum, though. We can trust right now. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, frankly, there's no better time than now. It doesn't require a degree, a dissertation, a checkbook, a resume. It doesn't require a recommendation. He wants our hearts by acknowledging our sin. Repenting, meaning turning away from the worldly patterns that are ineffective. Not by trying to change by trusting. In this trust, we will transform, and let's get excited because those that haven't accepted Jesus, they're going to be empowered with the Holy Spirit, headed toward the timeless, perpetual, and perishable glory story of the gospel. And those of us that are believers, remember, each one of us has so much left unwritten. And right now, the story, it may not look too good. You may not like how it's reading. But with his death on the cross, resurrection from the grave, he put us in the greatest position to win. In the challenges, we can follow his lead. And in the changes, we can be secure. He's always with us. And because of our trust in him, church, we are all headed for glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that amidst all the different challenges and changes 
that we encounter and experience in our lives. You demonstrate through these biblical figures that we're headed for glory. The end of our story is glory. We have you in our lives. The motivation that we may need it may not always come from YouTube videos. It may not always come from different quotes that we find in the world. But the motivation comes from understanding that our story ends with glory. We're headed for glory. So at every pit stop, every exit, every detour that we experience, may we be reminded humbly through the testimonies of those that have gone before to set our trajectory, position ourselves towards the cross, specifically the shadow of the cross. That's where we find transformation. So we ask blessings upon this church that even not just as individuals, but local churches, the church across the world, that when these changes occur, we don't put a veil up. That veil is lifted, finding trust in you, trusting for the transformation and trusting that we're headed for glory. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.